You'll notice uh, up here on the communion table, kind of in the back here, there's a rose. And part of the tradition of our church family is whenever there's a new child born in this congregation, we put a rose somewhere where you can see it, often on the communion table. And that rose represents Quinn Haddadin. He is the newborn son of Jamie and Isar, who often come to this service. Uh, obviously not here this morning, or I'd uh, introduce them to you. They waited 10 years to have their first child, and that's Quinn. He was born uh, last weekend. I think we prayed for him last Sunday. If you remember, I shared he was in the hospital with an infection, and they didn't know what that was about. And uh, they even did a spinal tap to, to um, test him for meningitis, and that came back inconclusive. And family called and said, hey, would you pray for us? And said, absolutely, we will. And then on Monday, myself and Sherry Bogart, our director of children's ministry, went to the hospital to visit Quinn and Jamie. The, uh, the mom was there. And we prayed for him, of course, and laid hands on him and asked the Lord to bless him, um, though they didn't know what was happening with the infections. They said it would be two to three weeks before he would be able to go home. On Monday, his counts began to come down. On Tuesday, they came down further. On Wednesday, he went home. Um, So we just know that uh, when we united in prayer last weekend as a church and when we went and laid hands on him, that God uh, worked mightily for him. And they're very happy that he's at home. We pray continual protection. So when you see them, they'll probably be pretty... um, uh, You'll know who they are. They're going to be carrying a newborn infant whenever they choose to bring him. Uh, but, But give blessings to Jamie and Isar and Quinn. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the very beginning of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Now this passage is a little different. Just listen to it, or read it, follow along in your Bibles. It's a little different. But as you listen to it or read it, try to pick up the names that do make sense to you, or that you do connect with. May not be a lot of it, that's okay. Just listen, see what you do, pick up, what does, what does sound familiar. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Abinadab, Abinadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Ruth, excuse me, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, 
Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matan. Matan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. What message of any interest could possibly come from a genealogy like this? Phil, I drug myself out of bed on this cold morning in an inversion to come and hear a genealogy, you're asking? I'll bet some of you have read legal notices that are more interesting than this, right? Well, please hang with me because I believe Matthew's genealogy of Christ has good news for us. So just hang with me, okay? During the uh, remaining months of uh, Advent, uh, remaining months, the remaining weeks leading up and including Christmas Eve, the sermons are going to come from Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew's account of the birth of Christ. Now, Matthew and Luke are the only gospel writers who pay attention to the birth of Jesus Christ. We will look at Matthew's take on this whole event. And while Jesus is the center of Christmas, Matthew shows us that God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are also involved and crucial to Christ's coming into the world. The entire Godhead is involved in Christmas. In fact, the more closely you read Scripture, and particularly the New Testament, you will find and begin to see that whenever God shows up, you find the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all coming together. Sometimes one is more pronounced than the other two, but they are all present and all active. Christian faith is a Trinitarian faith, which is to say we believe that God is one and there is only one God, but we believe this God exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they all share the same stuff, being God, if you would, the same substance, but yet they're all separate and distinct as well. Not three gods, but three persons, but one God. And while there's no verse in the Bible that says, you know, Trinity or no, the word doesn't even appear anywhere in the Bible, those who have read and studied the Bible over the centuries, those who have paid attention to how God has worked in the Bible, those who pay attention to how we have learned how God has worked in our lives, have come to believe God exists in this way. Yes, it's difficult to totally understand. Yes, you look straight into the Trinity and your mind can't get around it. Yes, no human language can really grasp it or describe it. But God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is a central conviction of Christian faith. And as we read Matthew's account of the birth of Christ, we are going to find... And we will see that God the Father, the over us God, 
God the Holy Spirit, the in us God, and God the Son, Jesus, the with us God, are all involved in the coming and the birth of Christ. As a matter of fact, Matthew ends his gospel. If you read at the very end, the last thing he ends with is Jesus telling his disciples, now go and baptize all believers in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Matthew is very Trinitarian in what he gives us in the story of Jesus. Christmas involves the entire Godhead, but this morning we're going to see how God the Father, the over us God, is the sovereign God who has had and always will have an overarching plan for this world, for all of history, and for our lives. Now, Matthew chapter 1 is Matthew's way of introducing us to Jesus. And that he does it with a birth story is not surprising. That he does it with a genealogy is surprising. No other gospel writer thought that it was important to do it like this. This is also the very beginning of the New Testament that we read. When people come to me and they say, and they, they want to begin, they're, they're new Christians, they want to begin reading the Bible, they ask me, Phil, where do I start? I say, well, the Gospels are a good place to start. Those are the accounts of Jesus' life. But I know in the back of my mind, they're going to open to Matthew and they're going to find those, that genealogy, and I don't want them to put it down and say, well, the heck with this. So I tell them, skip to verse 18, and it'll get more interesting and more compelling. But the very first words of Matthew and the very first words of the New Testament in our English Bible begin this way, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. You can read that. You see that. Let me tell you that the very first two words in the Greek text from which the English translation comes, the very first two words are this, biblos geniosis, biblos geniosis, which could be translated a book of beginnings. Now, whereas that word geniosis can mean genealogy, which it reads like in our English Bibles, it can also mean beginnings. It can also mean Genesis. And hopefully that's a familiar word to you. You probably see the word Genesis hidden in that word geniosis. Genesis is the title of what? The very first book of our Bible, which is a book about beginnings, isn't it? It's about the beginning of the creation of the world. It's about the beginning of us, the human race, created in the image of God. It's also the beginning of the story of our rebellion against God, which defaced the image of God that we were created in. And it's the story, the beginning of the story of God going after us, seeking us, finding what was lost in redemption. Well, perhaps Matthew begins his account of Jesus with these two words because he wants us to see that the birth of the Savior is even a greater genesis than the birth of the world. That in Jesus comes a new beginning, a new beginning for the world, a new beginning for anybody that will follow him, a new beginning that we experience, a genesis in our own lives when we believe in Christ. Jesus Christ is identified then as the son of David and as the son of Abraham. Two prominent Old Testament figures related to Jesus and highlighted. Why these two? David and Abraham. Why? Well, to David, the king of Israel was given the promise that his kingdom would always be going on. It would never 
end. Um, Abraham was the father of the faith, and to him God promised that God would bless all peoples, all nations, through his seed, through someone to come from him. Both David and Abraham received the promise of the Messiah. Now Matthew is letting us know that Jesus is the seed of both David and of Abraham, and he is the one whose kingdom will never end. He is the one through whom God is going to bless all the nations. Now from here, Matthew's genealogy is organized, very organized, into three different sections of 14 names. Three sections of 14 names. And the list of names is really, it's like a mini history of the Old Testament, of the people of God. And each section teaches us something about God. The first section teaches us about the mercy of God. The first section teaches us about the mercy of God. That first section has a strange set of names. Maybe you heard some of them or read them. It's strange because there are names of women in that first section. And in a Jewish genealogy where you're trying to prove your ethnicity and the purity of your line, it was always males. You would never include a woman. And the, it's the fact that these four women are included, Jesus' line, it doesn't show that he's ethnically pure and it certainly doesn't show that he's morally pure. Let me tell you about it. We would expect, if we're going to have women in Jesus' genealogy, we would expect names like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, great mothers of the faith, But that's not who we get. These are the names. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, whose name isn't even used. She's just called Uriah's wife. This is the thing about these four women. Tamar and Rahab were prostitutes. Ruth is a Moabitess. She's from the Moab race, which were traditionally enemies of Israel, and they began out of an incestuous relationship. Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, had an uh, adulterous relationship with King David, though she was the victim in that situation. We generally don't teach these names to our kids in the children's Sunday school. Not only are they morally questionable, but they are, they're, they're non-Jews. None of them. Are these really the type of people that you want to highlight if you're trying to show the family line of the Messiah? It is if you want to show and have the message that God can overcome and forgive sin and that God can use soiled but repentant people for His purposes. Dale Bruner, the Bible teacher, has said, These these four women, in their way, preach the gospel of divine mercy. Matthew is teaching us that Jesus came not only for, but through sinners. When Martin Luther read Matthew chapter 1, he commented this. He said, oh, Christ is the kind of person who is not ashamed of sinners. In fact, he even puts them in his family tree. This is mercy. This is mercy, that God is for us, that no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, God came for you, for us. 
And Matthew will go on to tell us that the angel will tell Jesus' parents, name him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And Jesus will go to John and receive a baptism for the forgiveness of sins, even though he was He hadn't done anything wrong, but he wanted to identify with us so completely. And Jesus will say, I came not for those who are righteous. I came for sinners. And at the end of his gospel, Matthew will tell us that Jesus is crucified between two sinners. Jesus isn't for those who have it all together. He's not for those who've never done anything wrong or never failed. He is for the most sinful, the most broken, the most needy, the most hurting. That first set of names teaches us about the mercy of God. Now, God not only forgives, but he also demands. And the reason there is forgiveness of sins is because there's something called sin. And that happens when, because God has standards. And when those standards are broken, we are now in opposition to God. And the second set of names teaches the judgment of God. It goes from David to the exile in Babylon. Israel declined after the time of King David. Things were just terrible. They turned against God. And finally, God allowed them to be crushed and overtaken by the mighty nation of Babylon to show his judgment upon their sin. We sure don't like to use that word judgment, do we? We'd rather speak of love. But we wrongly polarize, I think, judgment and love against one another. Now, judgment is not a contradiction of love. See, judgment is a function of love. This is what I mean. Judgment doesn't have to be critical. It is to determine what's right and what's wrong. Judgment says there's a standard and there's an expectation that that is to be kept. What parent, what good parent, doesn't discipline or call their child into account or even punish their child when they've done something wrong? Why? They love them. We want them to know the difference between right and wrong and that there is a standard And that you just don't do anything you want to. That there's right and there's wrong. Yes, God is love, but he is holy love. He's holy love. And God let Israel know there's expectations to being my people. And so they ended up in Babylon. And the kingdom of David came down. And their land was ruined and their heritage destroyed. And they experienced the judgment of God. And they faced the big question, well, what now of the promises to Abraham and David? Has God forgotten it? Are we done? Is he through with us? Have we made so many mistakes that we are done being God's people? Well, you know, judgment is never God's last word. Judgment is never God's last word. And while Matthew wants to show how close the promise of the Lord came to being erased by people's obedience, he also wants to show how faithfully God keeps his promise. And so that final section of names is about the faithfulness of God. That final section in the genealogy goes from the exile of Babylon to the birth of Jesus, who is called Christ. Those years in Babylon, up until the appearance of Christ, they were terrible years for Israel. But God, who had promised to Abraham and he had promised to David that he would do things through them, kept his word. For 500 years between Babylon and Jesus, when it looked like everything had fallen apart for Israel, when it looked like God seemed most distant, when it felt like his promises were at an end and he had forgotten about them, God was actually working and he was moving and he was putting his plan together and he was keeping his word. During that time, 
In the exile of Babylon, God sent prophets to the people and said, this isn't going to last forever. But I'm going to send you one who's going to restore you, the Messiah. And Matthew 1 shows us how through the years, through the generations, all the way to Mary and Joseph comes Jesus the Christ, which means God was faithful to his word. When Gabriel came to Mary, that was her her song in Mary's song, that God has remembered his promises to Abraham and to his people. In essence, you see, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17 is the Old Testament being read through the spectacles of Jesus Christ. Matthew's giving us Christ and saying, read this all now through Christ and see what it looks like to you and what God was doing and what he was bringing to fulfillment and fruition. Matthew's not just given us a genealogy. He's given us a theology. Matthew's not just given us history. He's given us a sermon. And the overarching message, the big message of this genealogy that speaks of the mercy of God, that speaks of the judgment of God, that speaks of the faithfulness of God, is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God, that is that God the Father is over us, working out His purposes in history and in our lives. The belief, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is that the God over us is writing a story, painting a picture, orchestrating a symphony that is bigger and grander and more wondrous than any of us can even imagine. And God is in charge of everything through hardship, through suffering, through difficulties, and nothing can thwart His purpose. No matter how crazy it gets, God is over it all. No matter how dark and bloody we may think our own histories may be, there's a story, and there's a storyteller, and there's a plot, and there's a plot maker and a plot weaver, and behind all the mess and the unpredictability of the human story, God is weaving another story into something beautiful, into something redemptive. Maybe you're wondering if because of where you've been, who you are, you've been disqualified from the story. Maybe you weren't raised in a Christian background and you think that disqualifies you. Maybe you've had a troubled past. Maybe there's been years where you didn't even care about God. Or maybe you've been through some things, wreckage that's just put you outside of God's purposes for you, you think. Hey, we're talking about the God who brought Jesus from the likes of Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. We're talking about the God who brought the Messiah out of a people that had totally turned their back on Him and were in judgment. Pay attention to who is writing this story. The things we experience in our lives are the things God can take and work for us, and work in us. He is writing a story, and he uses every letter. He uses every punctuation, and and he'll rearrange it. He'll rearrange it to make it work for us. Listen to these words from a 17th century Jesuit priest from France. And I'm going to butcher his name because I I didn't do well in French in junior high. Jean-Pierre de Casset. Jesuit priest, 17th century. This is what he said, how God is working our stories, writing our stories. He says, God puts letters together to make a word. 
He assembles more to form another. There are perhaps only three or six, but they are exactly right. Any different number would make nonsense. After all, he alone knows the thoughts of men, and so he alone can put them into words. Everything is significant, and everything makes perfect sense. A line ends because God wants it to. There's not a single comma missing or one full stop too many. Although I believe now when the day of glory dawns, the secrets of so many mysteries will be shown to me that I shall realize how imperfect my knowledge was during the earthly life. What now seems to me so confused, so incoherent, so foolish, and so fanciful will then delight and entrance me by its order, its beauty, its wisdom, and the incomparable wonders I shall explore for all eternity. God wastes nothing in our lives. He wastes nothing. He's putting it together, the words the punctuation. He takes the marriages and the divorces, the parents and the children, the sicknesses and the death, the problems and the suffering, and he uses it and molds it to shape it into something for his glory. If we will trust in him, if we will wait upon him, if we will hold on to him, he will do that. And someday we'll see it all clearly. To hold to the sovereignty of God is to believe that everything, good or bad, must fit his purpose for my salvation, for our salvation. And Matthew tells us, Matthew tells us, you just never know how God is working. Even, even the times when it doesn't look like he is, the days, the weeks, the months, the years, the centuries, oh, he is. He sees it all, remembers it all, and can do it all. I suppose that is why those who have an eye on God trust and trust His sovereignty can always have hope. What we can't see does not limit His power. Look at those first 17 verses of Matthew's gospel again. It's not exciting. It's dry as toast. And maybe you don't know each of those names and their significance. I don't. But I do know that it speaks of God the Father, the over us God, and how he was working out a plan and bringing it to fulfillment and is bringing it to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So God, we keep waiting. We keep hoping. We keep trusting in you. Your ways, your plans, your purposes, for you, for us, for we, your people. Amen.